Hi, I'm Marcus. I've been working in the area of ageing and longevity for over 25 years, both here in Australia and right across the world. And I want us to develop new thinking on getting older. Booming the podcast is about unlocking the mysteries of getting older in today's society. It's about understanding the opportunity we have to embrace our new longevity and overcome the challenges that we'll encounter along the way. And so he went into the shed and found like an old sword blade and spirited it inside the walking (laughs) sticks. I think there is a lot of fantastical thinking going on out there and I tend to be a bit of a dose of cold water when when those sorts of remarks are made. It's almost inevitable that at some point in our lives, either our loved ones or ourselves, we'll need to access health and aged care services. In this discussion, Sarah Holland-Batt, a prominent advocate on issues such as aged care, shares her and her family's experience experience of navigating the aged care system and offers her insights and advice to people in the same sort of circumstances. No, we weren't very good at planning and decision making, I have to say, which is quite <laughs> quite strange because in my life I'm an intensely organised, decision making oriented kind of person. Plus the fact that Sarah is an internationally acclaimed poet and writer. She shares with us tips about how we can all pursue our creative practices. You know, there's something really beautiful, I think, about that act of paying attention to the world around you. Sarah Holland-Batt, wonderful to have you with us on Booming. Welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Great to be here. I want to start talking about your writing and, and poetry career, which you've had wonderful success with. Can you tell us how that came about and who or, or what were your, were your early inspirations to, to write? Yeah, look, um, I didn't anticipate, I don't think anyone really plans to become a poet. It sort of happened to me um, by circumstance in a way. I had always wanted to be a classical pianist and that's what I'd sort of studied to do um, all the way through high school, but then uh, moved home from the United States where I was living and enrolled in a literature degree and just became really quite obsessed with poetry. I'd, I'd liked it through high school. I'd written a little bit of it. Um, and as as I suppose I came into adulthood, um, I realised that that was probably where my talents, you know, my greatest talents lay were, were in writing. And um, I think for me, the appeal of poetry, it's probably a little bit like what painters feel about painting. You know, each each poem is a, is a new discrete artwork. There's a lot of endings and beginnings in poetry. It's not the slog of writing a novel or a nonfiction book. Um, there's a sense in which you know, in each in each poem, there's a totally new form that you that you devise, um, and I think the I suppose the the creativity um, of that and the freedom of that, the intellectual freedom, but also aesthetic freedom, was was really appealing to me. And so, it's something that I started to write, you know, quite seriously during university, and then just kept going. And you know, you sort of look back. I'm turning forty this year. <clears throat> speaking of aging, and you look back and think, "Gosh, what <laughs> happened?" You know, um, it's I've had twenty plus years yeah. of adulthood now, and um, but yeah, it's it's sort of it's strange to speak of poetry. I think as a career, even though I obviously have a career as a poet, because really it's something that people don't do for career reasons. You do it for the love of it, for the love of literature, for the love of language, for the love of writing, and so. 
um, yeah, it is It is odd sometimes when you look back and think, gosh, that's what I've done with my adult life, poetry. You know, it's not what my parents had intended and it's not what I'd intended, but, yeah. but here we are. <laughs> um, I mean, there aren't really jobs for poets, full-time jobs for poets. So my, my career is really that I'm an academic. I'm a professor of creative writing and, and literary studies, and that's what I do for a day job. And that, that seems to dovetail pretty well with with life as a writer it gives you some time through the year to to do writing you're able to be immersed in it intellectually and to teach it and to pass it on to to new and emerging younger writers and I think that's sort of been um that's been the main way I've spent my time working which is sort of both poetry and not poetry sometimes when you're doing a lot of marking and administration it feels quite far from poetry but getting to lecture and and teach forms of writing I think for me is really quite satisfying so there's that kind of strand to it and then there's I suppose the whole ecosystem of of writing of writers festivals of publishing in recent years I've done a lot of commentary writing and opinion writing um, on aged care and I suppose poetry in a way in a funny way has sort of laid the groundwork for that paying attention to language paying attention to the best way to get content across uh, it carries through. And so my writing career now is much more diverse than it was when I first started, just as a poet. Um, but I get pleasure across those forms too. With that point about the, the, the pleasure that you can derive, I've heard Jerry Seinfeld speak and advise writers about when you finished a piece or a particular form of your writing to at least give yourself 24 hours of enjoying that before sharing it for for feedback from others. Do you afford yourself that sort of... Uh... <laughs> Uh, benefit I mean, and pleasure as well before you share it with the wider world. <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, I, I rarely feel um, satisfaction and pleasure when I finish something. I think, I think being totally critical and remaining critical about you know your work is really key to being a good writer. And so, rare are the times, rare are the occasions that I've sort of looked at something I've written and thought, "Oh, that's totally done. That's absolutely perfect." Um, how proud am I? That that that's that's a pretty rare state of mind for for good writers, I think, for writers who who are always wanting something right. something more, you know. But I do. I mean, I take forever to write yeah. pieces. So uh, twenty four hours, my God. Sometimes I'll finish something and return <laughs> to it four months later, and then return to it a month later, return <laughs> to it, return to it. And, you know, there's pieces yep. of writing that I've taken three years to even send out for publication because I'm just not sure whether I'm pleased with them. Wow. So yeah, I'm probably a higher level than the than the 24 hour buffer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that could be a healthy thing. Yeah, totally. Um, what are your thoughts about the virtues for all of us, irrespective of talent levels, in creative pursuit? The impact that can have on us, be it emotionally, cognitively, spiritually, even. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. And I'm a big fan of people pursuing creative work and creative practice whether they're good or not, whether whether they're aiming to be good or not. You don't have to be doing these things writing for an audience, you know, and I think for a lot of people having a journal, having having a notebook that they just jot thoughts down in, having a dream diary even, um, or picking up a sketchbook can be an incredible release from um, the sort of onslaught mm-hmm. of digital media that we're just constantly subjected to, you know, this sort of endless drone of television and the internet and I think there's something very meditative about being, you know, ensconced in a moment of creativity and creative practice and and thinking and imagining. 
And I think it's incredibly important, obviously for cognition, but just also for pleasure. You know, it's it's just a beautiful thing to do to sit yeah. down and work on something, even if you don't end up finishing it, even if it has no purpose other than just your own intellectual pleasure. Um, I think that's really important. And then I would add to that, not just making, but also consuming. You know, there's so much research now mm. showing the benefits of engaging with art, engaging with music, engaging with writing, with poetry, um, that, that, that these these art forms not only, you know, enlarge our imagination and make us more interested in, in the world, but they also bring us, I think, a lot closer to the lives of others and, and the perspectives of others who, you know, may be otherwise quite distant from us. And so the beauty of poetry or visual art or music is that you can stay in your house but be reading an artwork that's created in Kandahar or, you know, in Italy or three centuries ago or 2,000 years ago. And I think that sense of continuity and human connection that we get from consuming art and, and you know, reading it and, and engaging with it is just as valuable as it is when we when we participate in the making of it ourselves. Indeed. And what are your tips to to people who might be, whether it's intimidated or a, a bit hesitant to engage in those practices or, or those pursuits? What's, I guess, your, your starting tips for people to um, start embracing some sort of creative pursuit where they otherwise may not have done so? Yeah, look, I think so much of good art you know, the key is paying attention and learning to pay attention and, and settle the mind. And this is something I talk to my university students about a lot, that that learning to be still and pay attention to the exterior world and the internal world are kind of the, the, the key to being good writers, uh, you know, good artists of any form. And so my, my advice to folks who are thinking about having a little entree into some form of creative practice, whether it's writing or drawing or whatever it is, is is just set yourself, you know, perhaps the task of observing two things closely during a day. And that might just be on your afternoon walk or your morning walk. It might be something that you spot in a shop window. It might be an interesting looking person in a cafe. It might be a bird doing something unusual or an animal that you haven't seen before. And just taking a moment to kind of record them closely and think about the image, think about the moment, think about the texture of what's surrounding it. Um, I think that act of paying attention is is so central to all good art. Mm. And um, I have a dear friend, Jason, who's a, who's a painter. And, you know, whenever you go to a cafe with him, the second, by the time you've ordered your coffee, he's already started sketching the barista. He's already started sketching, you know, the other patrons <laughs> in the cafe. And, you know, yeah. there's something really beautiful, I think, about that act of paying attention to the world around you. And it, it's the same thing with poetry. It's the same thing with novels. You know, characters don't spring out of absolutely nowhere. They're based on close attention to what's happening in the world. And so even without making the art, just that act of really, you know, concentrating the mind and paying close attention a couple of times during the day um, helps still you. It helps helps make you kind of centred. Yeah. It sort of stops the endless scrolling of the internet and the constant blather of, you know, different forms of media. Um, and I worry yeah. that we're slightly using, losing our capacity to pay sustained attention. So that's something I think about a lot. Maybe that's a little first start. And if you've got a if you're interested in writing, if you're interested in poetry, 
keeping a notebook where you just jot down these little daily observations, half the time you'll find that there's something interesting in there that could make, you know, material for a poem. Um, and they're just great to look back through as well. When you're searching for an image or you're searching for something, you know, to add into a new piece of writing, you've got this kind of treasury of things you've observed. And so that that would be my kind of advice. It's like being a, being a bit of a naturalist, you know, just going out and, and making some observations of the yeah. things you see. Simple but but powerful, I think. Yeah, absolutely powerful. And I know, Sarah, that you've done a lot of work in different sorts of environments and with different generations of people around the artistic pursuits and, and uh, obviously a uh, focus on poetry and, and writing. Can you share your thoughts about the importance of those pursuits as we do grow older and a different approach is needed as, as we grow older or is it the same sort of approach to those practices no matter what age we are? Look, I think, I mean, the, the, the research does show the value, um, you know, for older people of remaining mentally active and, and certainly engaging with, uh, with complex kind of forms of art, visual art, music, language like poetry and literature, um, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but it but it sort of stands to reason that obviously, you know, that 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 form of attention um, that's required to to I suppose absorb those works can only be excellent for, for our brains and for our longevity. Um, yep. But I think you know something that that is um, interesting and perhaps surprising is that older people form the majority of audience members at, at writers' festivals by significant margin. You know, I've just done a whole gamut of festivals this year and I would say 90% of the audience in most of the sessions, you know, is over 60, a, a, a retired women, in fact. And right. I think there is a high level of engagement with with books, with reading, um, among among you know older generations in Australia, perhaps more so than there are than there is among really young generations, where you know the lure of the internet and the lure of devices is is strong. So, I think the challenge may even be for you know people of my age group and and younger um, to to continue to learn to pay that sustained attention. Um, you know, having grown up increasingly, including, you know, my students and really young people having grown up in an entirely digital kind of environment. Um, so I think it is extraordinarily important that um, not only that people do it for their own health, but that they're given access to it. And I think that's that can be a bit of a challenge, certainly, for example, in an aged care context, making sure that residents have access, you know, and the opportunity to engage with art and to engage with these complex and beautiful forms of human expression. That, that's an important kind of component of it. But I think generationally there may be a challenge uh, for younger people as they age, you know, to learn to pay that, to, to continue to pay that form of attention. Sarah, many listeners will have, have come to know you through your, your passionate advocacy on aged care issues and, and other social issues too. And this has been underpinned, I guess, by your family's experience of your, your dad's rather awful circumstances when he was in care. Prior to your dad moving to care accommodation, can you describe your family setup and, and your role in the family around that time? Yeah, sure. So dad, I mean, dad uh, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease when I was 18. So just when I was finishing high school um, and I'm an only child. So it's just my mother, my dad and I and uh Dad and mum were living at home and they managed to stay, Dad managed to stay at home for a really long time, for 15 years 
post-diagnosis. So he was diagnosed relatively young. He was, uh, I think, 63 or 64 when he got his diagnosis. And um, he he was an incredibly intellectually active person. Um, you know, he, he'd been a scientist and a metallurgist, but he also composed music. He read literature. He read philosophy. He, you know, had 100,000 hobbies that included, you know, 10 or 12 years into his Parkinson's teaching himself the harmonica because he couldn't play the piano anymore. He was that sort of person, you know, he liked to take apart computers and put them back together again and all sorts of things. So he he was quite an unusual mind, I think it's fair to say, really, really brilliant. And um, perhaps because of that, because he remained so intellectually active, um, his Parkinson's had a relatively slow progression. So, um he basically was all right for about 10 years. I mean, he went through some some various, you know, um, personality changes and depression and, you know, some of the mental health challenges that can come along with a diagnosis like that, which was pretty devastating for him. Um, but, you know, he kept himself really, really active. And so he and mum were sort of fine for probably the first 10 years. And then as as his Parkinson's progressed and he became less mobile, he had a deep brain stimulator um, implanted, which is a sort of kind of pacemaker that helps you walk if you've got Parkinson's. That worked for a while, but eventually, you know, he was falling a lot. It was it was a real worry. I was concerned that, you know, mum was trying to help him up on her own. Um, and I just got worried. We both got really worried that one day he'd, you know, she she might break her back trying to help him up and um, you know, it just became completely unwieldy, even with help uh, for him to be at home. Um, and so that was, I suppose, the setup. And yeah, I, I, I obviously supported mum and was part of that entire journey. But in terms of my involvement um, as, as a kind of carer for dad and my deep involvement, it probably the same as mum, it only really came at sort of the 10 year mark of his Parkinson's or maybe even a little bit later yep. when he you know, when his needs became a bit more acute. Did you and your mum consciously talk about the need for your role to change as your dad's needs were changing? No, we weren't very good at planning and decision-making, I have to say, which is quite <laughs> quite strange because in my life I'm an intensely organised, decision-making oriented kind of person. But I think we were both quite shell-shocked by, you know, just, just by the situation. It, you don't really get a guidebook. Um and, you know, he, he had changed as a person, you know, qu- quite a lot. His personality changed. He became combative and difficult. That was the sort of hard stuff to deal with. And I think mum and I were pretty much in survival mode of just trying to make sure that he got the care that he needed, um, trying to reason with him when he was sometimes wanting to do really irrational or even dangerous things. Um you know, I'm thinking of there was a hilarious, terrible in, you know, terrible at the time, but hilarious in retrospect. Um, there was a moment where he became sort of fixated on the idea that he'd been mugged, that he would be mugged when he was out because he was using a walking stick. And so he went into the shed and found a, like an old sword blade that somehow we had, you know, a, a small sword and spirited it inside the walking oh, wow. stick. So he opened up the walking stick and sort of <laughs> like somehow joined it to the to the handle. 
and created a kind of, um, you know, concealed weapon that we had yeah. to spend weeks <laughs> trying to tell him that he could not take out in public. And, you know, oh, and so there were, there were lots and lots of incidents like that where it was just, um, you know, you don't really have time to consciously no, sure. plan and discuss. You're just thinking, oh, God, what's Dad doing now? And, and so there were a lot of moments uh, like that. And I think you know, our roles just evolved as, as dad's needs became more acute and um, and it just sort of went that way. And I, I wish in a way we'd had someone to sort of help us or talk us through the stages and phases or what to expect, but it was sort of a lot of surprises coming very quickly around the corner with yeah. not a lot of time to think and, you know, react. And yeah. um, it's like that, I suppose, for anyone with a loved one with with a you know a cognitive illness there's a lot of surprises that you just couldn't possibly be prepared for and we we had our fair share of those yeah absolutely that's such a consistent feedback that people would would have loved to have had some sort of advice or assistance as they're trying to navigate through the the changes and Sarah I know you've spoken and written uh, in great detail about um, your dad's experiences could you just briefly outline uh, your dad's experience in the, the health and care system? Yeah, so dad moved into aged care in 2015 um, after, as as is common, I think, a spell in hospital um, where he had a pretty steep decline and uh, we we did the, the very diligent thing of inspecting a lot of aged care homes and we were both quite reluctant to put him in a home but fortunately we had some good doctors um, who just advised that it was really time, that, that it wasn't really safe for right. mum to be looking after him, which I knew it wasn't. Um, and so we, we did the best due diligence that we could and chose a place that we thought looked and seemed you know good it had nice grounds it had you know a pleasant facade and um and and so forth but uh when he moved in there you know first of all it was small things that went wrong and he had parkinson's like i said and when you have parkinson's you need to have a, a drug called matapar um, and you need to have that drug on the dot several times through the day because it helps regulate your movement right. and you know dad was not getting that drug on time and so that was sort of the first thing that we noticed yep. and then there were various other you know, small but just distressing things like, uh, you know, he would be unclean, he would, he'd would he be wearing clothes that appeared to have been worn the day before and were dirty with food and so forth. Um, and, and the problems just kind of snowballed from there. And uh, then there were some quite major things. He, you know, broke, broke his hip um, in a fall because no one was there to help him to go to the bathroom and he tried to take himself to the bathroom himself and after that fall of course he never walked again you know a hip a hip break can be really the end of someone's mobility and and so it was for dad and that was pretty devastating for him to be confined to a wheelchair and um and then beyond that unfortunately and I think um you know the most distressing thing was that a, a whistleblower so a, a nurse who worked in the facility who we knew and liked and trusted uh, came came to my mum and said, uh, "There's there's a carer who's been I've seen her deliberately um, belittling and verbally abusing your dad and doing things like, you know, shutting the door on him when he needs changing and needs to have a shower and telling other people that he's sleeping and you know just moving his incontinence aids away from him and telling him to go and get get them himself and so forth, and of course that was incredibly." distressing and infuriating 
And so began this big, um, you know, kind of enormous project really on my mum and my behalf uh, to, to get this person excluded from the aged care system because it was evident to us that she shouldn't be in the system at all if, if she was doing these things to my father. Um, and so that that's sort of the, the sweep of it. Um, and so I suppose his experiences, while he did have some really great carers, including that wonderful nurse who bravely came and told us, and she said to us, I'm telling you because I know that yeah. if I tell you, you, you know, something will happen about it. So I don't want to, I don't want to, um, to indicate that it was that there wasn't a lot of goodwill and effort and good staff, but overall the end result for Dad um, was that in spite of all of those good intentions, he often had really quite objectionable and, and grave kind of failures of care. You've spoken previously about uh, the transition to that care accommodation was was difficult for your dad, as it is for many people making that that shift. How was that period for you? when your dad moved from or was moving from home into a different environment? Initially, the feeling was relief. There was a little bit of relief at the beginning because mum was able to, you know, leave the house and go and do some grocery shopping and have a bit of a break. And there was a sense, I mean, we did have an initial faith in the home that it was going to be good and that it was, a, you know, we knew that, I mean, dad was resentful of it, didn't want to be there, was very negative but, you know, we knew that in time he would settle in and we we were visiting him every day between mum and I. Every single day we were visiting him. You know, I was speaking to him on the phone from Brisbane because he was on the Gold Coast. Mum was going in every single day. I was coming down on the weekends. We were trying to make him feel still really connected and still part of the family. And so I suppose our concern was for Dad's sense of settle settling in and, and happiness and for us, there was yep. a sense initially of, of great relief that, okay, well, we've made that decision, you know, and guilt. You do always feel a bit guilty when you move someone you love into care. It's not it's not ideally where you would necessarily like to see them. Um, and so mum and I, I felt guilty. Um, I know mum felt a little bit guilty, but we also recognise that his care needs were so acute that they couldn't be looked after at home. Um, so it was, yeah. I suppose, a, a mixed mixed emotions like most people probably have, to, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does seem to be consistent. And I want to come back to the, the more unfortunate circumstances in a moment, but just sticking with that period of the decision uh, of having to move your dad to a different environment where he can get the, the care that's required. What's your advice to, to families going through that um, process of identifying and, and accessing services for potentially for themselves, but often obviously for loved ones. What's your advice to people in that circumstance? Look, I think mum and I were focused on the wrong thing, which was how the facility looked and felt. And I think we were thinking the most important thing right. was finding something that felt like a home. And so dad's aged care home, it was beautiful. Yeah. It had beautiful gardens. It had really lovely rooms um, with with nice windows that looked onto the gardens um, it, it was a physically very handsome kind of building facility. And, um, you know, you've got to remember that you're not going there on holiday. You're going there for the level of care. And I wish that we'd known enough yep. to ask questions about how many carers were on staff, how many nurses were on staff. Um, and, I, I, you know, now I know, of course, that you can look up 
um, you know, safety quality reports about how the facility has performed and so forth, and new legislation that's coming through at the moment hopefully will give people a little bit more transparency about how well a provider's performed. But mum and I didn't know to look that stuff up. You know, we we inspected probably four or five of homes um, and this one seemed to, right. it seemed to have the nicest feel about it. And of course, that that's important too, because you're going to be spending a lot of time there as a family. You don't want something that feels really cold and clinical. But on the other hand, we probably should have spent some time perhaps even speaking to some carers, um, you know, just having a chat in the hall during a visit um, to get a sense of, well, how well staffed is it? How long have people been working there? Because, you know, one of the things that Dad experienced a lot was just an endless carousel of new faces, people coming and going. Um, That Mm. makes it really difficult for it to feel like a home when you have a different carer every week and, um, so I think some of those things uh, would have been really important to know about. And then, you know, I wish we'd paid a little bit more attention, I suppose, to the to the provider itself. Um, you know, there is a lot of information generally available if you'll Google whatever the name of the aged care provider is. If you Google that and have a look on some news websites, you will learn a little bit about, you know, how the provider has performed. Has it had failures of care? You know, what what kind of information is out there in the public domain? Um, I think we sort of we're, we're relying too much on gut instinct on what felt nice, and um, you know, I, I regret that. But then, of the of the facilities we inspected, it, it was the nicest. I would stand behind that perception. So it can be tricky. Um, And I think the other thing that I wish that we'd done was move him sooner. Um, When when, when those first things went wrong and we got a sense that the facility wasn't quite performing the way we wanted, we just kept thinking, oh, if we keep raising things and keep keep on it, the standard will lift. I think if you move a loved one into a home and you're not happy within the first month or two, it's probably kinder to move them at that point. It got to a stage where dad really couldn't be moved. It would have been very distressing. His dementia set in, his Parkinson's and his physical yeah. needs, you know, made it too difficult to move him. I wish we'd we'd understood that actually it's okay to move someone in the first month. If you're not happy, it's not going to be great, but it's probably better if you can find something that you that sits better with you than staying and hoping that you can lift the standard yourself. That's very, very difficult if nigh on impossible to achieve just as a family, you know? That's a reality and I think very sage advice. Probably the one thing I'd add to that advice you gave in terms of selecting a facility or a provider is as much as you can talk to people who've had a direct experience with that yes. facility or with that uh, service to, to hear what they have experienced and whether that's you know, good, bad or indifferent. And looking to the future, Sarah, how has your family experienced shape your thinking about your own aging journey? It does make me apprehensive about going into care. Um, you know, it, I'm not going to lie or sugarcoat that. I, I, I certainly hope. No, that's understandable. Yeah, I, I really, you know, my, my, my main reaction is that I don't want to go into aged care. But this, you know, and that, that's something that people say to me constantly. And I, 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 I think it and say it myself. Um, but I think the reality is that as we get older for longer, um, as we haven't had the commensurate kind of improvement in the quality of life, we're just getting older and, and you know, frankly, often more frail towards the end of the life, our lives, 
the reality is that most that many people will need to access care and so I think I don't want to stop my thinking at oh gee I don't want to go in, into aged care I'm happy to say that and acknowledge it but I think the second and most important part that we need to focus on is but if I have to what kind of system would I like to go into and I think we are a long way you know, in terms of most current iterations of aged care in Australia, we are a long way from a system that most people, that you and I, Marcus, might want to go into. And I think we've got to stop stopping at that first yeah. thought and spend most of our energy on the second thought. You know, what could I live with? What what would be palatable? What what you know, what kind of setup might actually give me a little bit of pleasure, a bit of a sense of connection with the community? Um, that's where I'd like to spend my energy because I think I hear so much, you know, talking about aged care, writing about aged care, the overwhelming response I get from people is, oh, gosh, I'll just, I'd rather die than go into aged care. I just don't want to go. But, you know, we, we have to move beyond that as, as a society, as a culture. We actually have to ask the question, but if I do go, what system do I want? But beyond that, I think there's a huge well-being piece that we don't focus on probably enough. You know, I think the fear of going into aged care is not necessarily just the fear of being frail or needing medical care. It's more the fear of having nothing to do and being stuck and feeling like you're in a prison and that you're just, you know, isolated from society. And I think there's a lot we can do on that second part of it um, to make, you know, to make aged care a more connected place, to bring the community in, um, to stop it feeling like a cordoned off, you know, isolated kind of, isolating place to be and to make it a place that we might feel isn't so distinct from the general community. And I think that's a really important thing that I'd like to see more focus on. Do your peer groups and friendship groups discuss longevity and uh, what might lie ahead in terms of our, our longer lives? Yeah, look, you know, we do have those conversations and probably because they are my friends, they too are more aware of this stuff than they might be otherwise because it's pretty hard to avoid uh, <laughs> when you're a friend of mine being being buttonholed and, and being asked to discuss aged care. It does, I, I do tend to do it, um, you know, yeah. so I think, I think there is a lot of fantastical thinking going on out there and I tend to be a bit of a dose of cold water when that when those sorts of remarks are made. <laughs> but, you know, uh, yes, I think there's a lot of anxiety about getting old among my friends, you know, and I share it too. Um, a lot of uncertainty about, well, what what will life feel like if I'm frail and vulnerable? Um, I don't want to live too long. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to die early, but I don't want to live too long. I want to have a good quality of life. All of those things, I think, are pretty upfront on people's minds and a lot of my friends in the last few years have turned 40 and I'm turning 40 this year and that's a bit of a you know those milestones as they come up I've got friends who've turned 50 you know I think I think we sort of move along in our lives and then these little signposts come up and you think oh gosh yes I am creeping up there um and so yeah, yeah I mean I think that's universal um and I think I appreciate and understand the anxiety and and the concern and worry about getting old, but I think there's so much pragmatically that people could do to contribute to the public conversation and public pressure to ask for a better aged care system. I think aged care is a topic that we like to ignore and repress and pretend won't happen to us and won't apply to us, and I think that that's not helpful. Um, because leaving it to older people, leaving it to the demographic who's entering into aged care means nothing will ever happen. 
Well said. Sarah, thanks so much for being so open with us in terms of what your family experienced and, and indeed endured. It's it's enlightening for, for everyone to really hear. As you approach your 40th birthday, <laughs> we have three quick questions uh, which we end every interview with. So if you will indulge sure. us on these, um, we'll fire away with the first one. If you could talk to yourself 20 years ago, what's the one piece of advice you would give? Oh, stop worrying. I spent my 20s worrying. Stop worrying. Don't be anxious. You know, you will you will make something of yourself. You know, I think, I don't know, I spent, my, I spent all of my 20s being too perfectionistic and too worried and anxious. And I think um, one of the beautiful things about getting older is you get a sense of perspective and you realise your worries aren't nearly as big in anyone else's eyes as they are in your own. And um, so it's not worth spending all that time, you know, being worried and anxious about them. You may well have just answered the second question in that response as well. The second question is, what is the greatest thing about getting older? Mm. I think the greatest thing about getting older, perhaps as a woman more than a man, is the sense of confidence that I have. You know, I think um, particularly young women, perhaps young men too, but, you know, you, you spend your youth, your adolescence, your, your 20s, um, worrying that perhaps you're not good enough or that you, you know, don't know enough and, and constantly tr sort of striving and trying to get somewhere. And I think there's something really wonderful about feeling like I've arrived and I know what I'm doing. And so I think that that sense of, um, of ease and comfort in your skin comes a little later in life. Final question. One thing you wish for in your future? You know, other than a yacht and a beautiful house in Noosa, um, I'd say probably, <laughs> I'd say probably, you know, in my future, I wish to see the community more engaged on the question of aged care. I really do. Um, and I'd like to see just more uptake, more conversation. I'd like to see, it, it is a bit of a taboo, I think, and I'd like to see that taboo broken. Sarah Hollenbad, it's been our great fortune to have a conversation with you. Thank you for your time, but more importantly, thank you for sharing your insight and your inspiration. My pleasure, Marcus. Thanks for having me. I'm sure you will agree, a very enlightening conversation with Sarah, sharing her and her family's experience and circumstances which hopefully none of us have to endure. But importantly, Sarah also shared wonderful advice on how we can be more creative ourselves and the benefits of pursuing practices like art, writing and music. For more information on topics such as Sarah shared with us today, please visit the Booming website, booming.net.au.